Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast, where we are training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. Uh, if you guys want to open up your Bible, we're in the Gospel of Mark today. We're, we're making our way through Mark. We're leading up to Resurrection Sunday in a couple weeks. And I hope you guys are going to join us. It's always good to be here on Easter on Resurrection Sunday. Um, we're currently teaching through the Passion Week of the Lord. He's in Jerusalem. It's coming in the triumphal entry. And in Mark 14, verse 32, um, we actually see a fairly familiar account to us of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying about what he's about to experience on the cross. And we see him really wrestling. There's an internal struggle going on here. We see him really wrestling with with um, just, just being confronted with the cross and everything that it means spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally. So um, it's kind of a somber passage today, actually, I think, but gives us this really in-depth window into Jesus' heart that I don't think we actually see very many other places in the New Testament. There's some depths here to who he is and what he goes through that I think the scripture is specifically designed to to kind of highlight and illuminate, so it's going to be good. Um, if you guys remember, last week, Pastor Ben taught on um, the extravagant um, worship of Mary. She broke the perfume vial on Jesus' head, and some of the folks in the room were kind of criticizing her and like, oh, is it too expensive? You shouldn't have done it. And I think it's really cool at the end of that, if you have, if you have Mark 14 open and want to look, in verse 9, Jesus says, he, he, he pronounces a blessing on Mary. He says, wherever the gospel is preached, you will be remembered. I think that's so cool. He, he blesses her. And in Mark's literary style and the way he writes, he does this all the time where he puts two events side by side and he compares and contrasts them or he, he, he uses two events as bookends that kind of um, encompass or encircle um, some point that he wants to make with the text in between. So he's very strategic in actually how he writes and the literary structure of the document. It's not, he didn't just get a pen out and write this story. It's, it's structured in a really cool way. Some of that structure, if you guys look at verse 21, kind of fast forward to the betrayal of Judas. What does Jesus say about Judas in verse 21? It's not a blessing. It's a curse. He says, woe to the one who betrays the Son of Man. It'd be better if that guy had never been born. It's a pretty weighty curse. But again, Mark does this all the time where he compares and contrasts, and it's, uh, it's kind of cool to pick up on some of those small things in his gospel. So if we're in verse 32, that means that we skipped a big chunk, if you're following along with me. We skipped that section in the middle. It's the Passover meal. But over the next three weeks leading up to Resurrection Sunday, we're going to unpack the Passover meal in three parts. And when we do that, we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper together. This is kind of a unique or different way of looking at it. We're not really teaching through it sermon style. We're going to take the Lord's Supper and highlight three different parts of that together as we participate in it as believers, which I think would be really cool. I'm looking forward to that. Um, to set up the passage for today, the setting is they, they just finished the Passover meal. Uh, that Passover meal doesn't start till sundown. So they just finished that, and there's multiple stages to it. So we're imagining dinner's over. It's somewhere around 11 p.m. They're on the far western side of Jerusalem. So they make their way across Jerusalem towards the Mount of Olives. And then if you look at John's account of the, of the section, John has all of this teaching that happens over the Passover meal. And you start wondering, you're like, well, how did Jesus have time 
to do all that teaching, where did he squeeze it in? It's very, it's very likely that after the meal ended, as they were walking across, the subject of their conversation was John's discourses, because it's about from where they were to the Mount of Olives, it's about an hour to walk across through the city, cross the Kidron Valley off the eastern side of Jerusalem and make their way up to the garden. There's a, there's a private garden that they often went to outside the city. He, he, he did a lot of his teaching outside the city, take his disciples out there, and they, they'd spend time in this private garden, which was like kind of their time as um, you know, teacher and student, mentoring Jesus, Jesus encouraging and teaching them and setting them up to be the leaders of the church. Um, so it's probably midnight Thursday, uh, maybe 1 a.m. Friday. Friday's the same day that Jesus was crucified. So that happened about 3 p.m. Talking 15 hours away, maybe 18 hours away from Jesus being crucified. That's how fast things happen here. Um, we're getting right down to the end. Um, leading into this passage today, I feel like the best way that I can set it up is, is, is using some of the, the imagery and prophecy in the Old Testament to spotlight and shed light on uh, what we're gonna look at today. So if you guys have read through the prophet of Isaiah, there's a pretty familiar passage there too. It's Isaiah 53. It's the servant song. It's a chapter in the Bible, Isaiah 53, that's just about the Messiah. And if you're not familiar with it, I, my encouragement is leading up to Easter, read it. It's fantastic how you read this. And if you didn't know you were in the Old Testament, you would think that you were in the New Testament and this was talking directly about Jesus. But it was written hundreds of years before Jesus. I, it's incredible. Um, the, uh, Isaiah 53.3 says that this suffering servant would be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He'd be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. So in Jesus' 33 years on the earth, he was acquainted with every kind of grief and every kind of sorrow. He kind of has a unique ability to peer into somebody's life, an ability that we don't. I can't see into and know someone's heart. But while he was fully man, he was able to tap into this divine omniscience, this all-knowing part of his divinity, and often would tell people something about what was going to happen to them in the future, or know details about somebody's life that nobody else could know. He could see the heart. He knew what they were thinking. He knew what was on their minds. Often the religious leaders that he encountered, he's like, I know what you're thinking. I know. You don't have to say anything. I know. Um, he can peer into the soul. He has divine Omniscience, John recorded earlier in John's gospel that, that Jesus knew everything. It's a direct quote from John. Jesus knew everything, and it pops up other places too. So because he has this divine ability to know and to look into, he experiences and knows and is acquainted with sorrow. He's acquainted with grief. And you see him all over the gospels intervening into other people's sorrow and grief. And I find that so cool. He's like, I know what it is. It, it says often that Jesus was moved with compassion. He's moved with compassion. He's like, I'm gonna insert myself into that and I'm gonna provide some relief for you in the midst of whatever you're going through. It's, uh, it's pretty cool. Um, I find it interesting that the New Testament, it actually never mentions that Jesus laughed. Uh, if you go back into the Psalms, there's a Psalm that says the king of heaven laughs. It talks about you know, God, but specifically to Jesus on earth. It never mentions that Jesus laughed. It never mentions that he was, you know, happy. 
which I find interesting. But multiple times it mentions that he cried, he wept, he was sorrowful, he grieved, he was deeply moved, he was rattled. Um, he was a man that bore much sorrow. And getting closer to the passage, we're just about to read it. Hebrews chapter five, verse seven. Hebrews makes specific comment on Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a really cool verse. But it specifically says, the writer of Hebrews says that, that as Jesus approached the Father and asked him these questions, that Jesus wept loudly. He cried. Um, he cried. It, it, it was a very difficult experience for him to make his way through as we're going to unpack um, Luke tells us in his account that it was so bad that Jesus' Jesus' blood became mixed um, blood and sweat. That he, he sweat blood through his pores because of the anguish and the agony he was in. It's crazy. Why don't you read with me? Mark chapter 14, verse 32. So then they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he became very troubled and distressed. He said to them, my soul is deeply grieved, even to the point of death. Remain here and stay alert. Going a little farther, he threw himself to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour would pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And then he came and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake for one hour? Stay awake and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again and prayed the same thing. When he came again and found them sleeping, they could not keep their eyes open and they did not know what to tell him. He came a third time and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough of that. The hour has come. Look, the son of man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Get up. Let us go. Look, my betrayer is approaching. Mark doesn't write very many words about this in this short section. But to know that it happened over the span of a couple hours, I mean, one of the time references he made in there is he went away and he prayed for an hour and came back. And then he went away two more times and prayed. So how long was this? Two hours? Three hours? That he's kind of going through this churning process. Um, if you guys look at, at 33, I want to kind of talk about how this experience for Jesus, it's not like something that we can experience. We're not actually even able to fully relate. Because it's not possible for us to experience what he was going through and what weighed on him, okay? So I'm gonna get into that and unpack that a little bit. If you look at verse 33, um, it says he, he took Peter, James, and John with him and he became very troubled and distressed. Very troubled and distressed. I wanna look at the words troubled and distressed. So troubled back in the original language in Greek, it, it's, a, it's a compound verb and it means to be amazed. And you're like, well, how do they get amazement into troubled. How do they put those two together? I thought that was actually kind of interesting. Why would they say that Jesus is amazed? So again, kind of going back to what we already talked about, he is the God man. He has divine omniscience. He knows everything. You want to come up and surprise Jesus with something? Try to show him a magic trick? 
Good luck. He already knows. He's like, ah, I know what you did there. You know, he knows, right? He knows everything. He knows what's inside of you. He knows the future. So why do we get to a place in the scripture where it says Jesus was amazed, like taken back, like, wow, oh my, oh my gosh, you know, that one hit me, that one hit me. What could his omniscience not have prepared him for? I think that's interesting. I'll let, I'll let that thought kind of sink in. Troubled. It says distressed and troubled. Troubled means um, to be astonished. It's the same kind of idea. To be astonished. To be astonished specifically in agony. To be astonished in, ag- in agony. The, the level of suffering he went through was a level that was um, like to, to incomprehensibility. To beyond um, human understanding. So we get these words, troubled, distressed, amazed, astonished, shocked, surprised. All those kind of um, words are, are synonyms from what's going on here. So you, you start getting to this point where you're asking yourself, what is it? What, what has him so um, disturbed? There's a lot of things going on right now, right? One of his, his closest friends, Judas, has left the Passover meal to go betray him. And Jesus knows it. He tells him, what you're gonna do, go and do it quickly. Is it, is, it, is it the betrayal? I can't get over that. You guys have been betrayed. We've all been betrayed in some way. And that doesn't feel good. And it doesn't go away quickly. And you know that. Is he, is he thinking over that? Is he thinking over um, in just a few verses back too, quotes the Old Testament saying, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And he tells us the 11 that are left, you will all fall away. You will all turn your back on me and leave me. And Peter stands up. He's like, oh, no, Lord. No, 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 no. They may leave, but I won't leave. And you got John probably in the back shaking his head being like, Peter, you're an idiot. You know, what are you doing? It's, he's God. He knows, he knows what's going to happen, right? Peter is so great, man. He's um, committed to the end to Jesus, you know. Um, but even Jesus says, even, you're, even you are going to go. Is, is he distressed because it's not only Judas that's going to betray him, but the 11 are going to leave him? Is he thinking about the cross? Is he thinking about what am I physically going to have to go to just to get there? The lashes, the beating, the spitting, the mocking, getting punched in the face, my body physically beat, the, the spikes driven into my feet and hands. Is it actual, is, is it death? Is it, is it getting to the end and actually dying and he, and, he, and he fears death? All of those things are certainly on his mind. But when the scripture records and some of the evidences we see, when the scripture records that he was troubled to the point of death, we see some of the things that Luke wrote in his gospel, what would disturb him so, so far as to actually dying, as to sweating blood? I don't think it was those things specifically. I think it was something different. And I kind of want to get into that and, and look at that. I think there's multiple things going on here. Jesus' nature is different than our nature. Our nature is sin. Under, being born under Adam, being born in the line of Adam, he and, he and Eve, you know, they, I don't have to go over the garden, first sin, right? We're now all born into a sin nature. We're predisposed to and have this resident thing inside of us that's natural to us. At this point, it's natural to have this sin nature inside of us, and we war against it. We fight against its impulses. We fight against its desires. We say, no, I don't want to do that bad thing that's inside of me, but that bad thing's inside of me. And then sometimes we fall and fail and do that bad thing anyway. Jesus is built completely differently. 
the virgin birth, he bypassed the curse of Adam. He is born outside of the curse. He's born sinless, pure, holy, righteous. That's his nature. His disposition is to lean towards righteousness and to be disgusted by sin, to turn away from it, to throw it out. Because as God, he can't be linked to it. There's a really interesting thing. Try to wrap your mind around this. As God, he can't sin. But as human, as the God-man, he can genuinely be tempted to sin. Like, think about that for a while, (laughs) you know? Um, Everything inside him inclines him towards God. Sin is abhorrent to him. So as he's in the garden, as he's praying, Abba, you know, a personal address to God, Dad, Dad, Daddy, take this cup from me. I think one of the things that he's trying to get through, or the first thing maybe he's trying to get through is that, wow, I am, I am holy, I am righteous, this is not part of my nature, and I'm about to take on something that has never been a part of who I am. And it's like trying to mix oil and water. You ever get like two really strong magnets, and you're like, and you can't do it, right? You can't push them together. Jesus is wrestling with that, that thought right now that I'm about to take on sin. I'm about to take on the sin of the entire world and mix my being, the core of who I am, my character, this defines me. I'm gonna mix it with something that's alien and that's foreign and that's not a part of who I am. And, and, and he is wrestling with that thought and it's heavy. So let's say that he accepts that one and he gets past that one. I, I think the next thing that he wrestles with, he mentions the cup here, um, drinking this cup. He mentions it earlier in the gospel too. We see um, this, the, the cup as being the symbol in the Old Testament of divine wrath. We see it again in the book of Revelation. There's multiple cups in Revelation. And he talks about drinking this, this cup, accepting this cup. And what he's, what he's really talking about there is he's saying that, that, well, once I decide to take on sin, now I've mixed that with, with my nature and who I am, and I'm wearing that now, the next step is to say, well, now I have to pay for the consequences of that sin. And sin is weighty, right? It's heavy. It's heavy. In the Old Testament, the sacrificial system that God had set up, He's saying that, that, that sin will only be covered by a blood sacrifice. When you sin, something has to die. When I sin, something has to die. Sometimes that's something physical. Sometimes that's something spiritual. And in a very physical sense, my sin killed Jesus. It's the reason that he went to the cross. So we have a blood sacrifice system. Something has to die. Jesus is, is understanding that I'm gonna take on the full and the unbridled wrath of God. And and my punishment is an eternity of wrath and punishment. That's that's what I owe because of my sin. The Romans says for the wages or the product of sin is death, right? I'm gonna have to take that on myself personally. So Jesus did that for me on the cross. He was able to do that because he wasn't, he didn't have blemish. He was able to be the perfect spotless, sacrificial lamb. So he did that, he did that, he took my place, and he did that for you, he took your place. And then he did that for millions. He took on, on, on the, the, the pouring out of God's wrath for millions in moments. 
And I, I think that's what has him, part of what has him um, in agony right here. The, the wrath of God is no small matter. And I, I think, while at the same time, this is a really interesting thought too that I was thinking about in this passage. While at the same time, I think God is looking down on his son and he could not, in, in this moment, both in the garden and the cross, God cannot be more proud of Jesus. Why is that? Because Jesus followed through with his mission. Jesus didn't give in to temptation. Jesus was obedient to the point of death to the Father's will. I submit to your will. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna go through with it. And I think God looks down and he's proud at that moment. Like, God, I can't be more proud of my son. But at the same time, he's looking on sin and the Bible tells us that God forsook the son. He forsook the son at the cross. So there's some weird not weird, but I, I think it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the damage that it took on the relationship between the Son and the Father in this moment, both this sense of pride and, and yes, we did it, we won, but at the same time, God not being able to tolerate sin and turning away from his Son and, and breaking this relationship of fellowship. There's a deeper bond and connection there between the Son and the Father than we can actually understand. It's not like they're two different people. It seems that way because we read about Jesus in the Gospel and he addresses God the Father, but aren't they one being, the, the Trinity? It's one God. Jesus is God. God the Father is Jesus. So in a sense here, when he takes on sin, He's creating a division, more, more or less, within himself, within the Trinity. And I think there's something in the, in the very fabric of their relationship that was torn and damaged in this moment. And Jesus is, is knowing that that's coming as well. So he's working through and churning through all these things. And this is what brings him to his knees. This is the thought that he was like, like, this is who I am, I'm pure. This is who I am in relation to the Father. I'm about to wreck all of that and I, th I think it's literally splitting him in two and it's gonna kill him. It's gonna kill him. There's good news. <laughs> there's really good news, right? When we, say that when we preach the gospel, we say, hey, there's good news. What's the good news? He died for us and he invited us and he said, I'm gonna place your sin as far away from you as the east is from the west. He said, you were crimson red, stained, tainted, broken, not repairable, and I made you into something that was white as snow, and that's the good news, you know? But I feel like the, the amount that was endured to get to the good news is mind-boggling. It's crazy. We don't have a perfect hatred for sin. Jesus did. Everything inside him writhed at the thought of taking on iniquity. In verse 34, if you guys turn to verse 34, he says, my soul is deeply grieved deeply grieved. Literally, in Greek, it has the prefix pairing. So you guys think about perimeter, surrounded by. My soul is surrounded by grief, encompassed in grief, engulfed in grief, suffocating because of grief. It's heavy. It's weighing on him, and he is overtaken by it. Luke twenty-two forty-four. So Luke's account always dresses the physical You've got this, this story pops up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all address it and they all give different facets of it. And, and all of their accounts put together is a full picture, I think, of what's going on here. But Luke says that an angel was sent to strengthen Jesus. You say, well, why would they send an angel to strengthen Jesus? Well, it's because if the angel would not have come and strengthened Jesus, 
he would have died. It pushed him to that extent. And I think we've got to understand that and let that weigh on us. This pushed him to the extent of death. And an angel was sent to strengthen him. And it said, it said while the angel was there, Jesus began praying even more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood. And that's not even the best translation of that. Um, there is pretty strong evidence that his sweat was bloody. It was a mix of sweat and blood. Um, Jesus never said yes to sin. He never said yes to sin. He never said, yeah, I'll do it. You know, I, I'll, I'll sin. I'll give in a temptation. It was unjust. It wasn't fair. This, this is the greatest battle. The, the greatest battlegrounds that's taking place right here in the garden. It is. You ask yourself, it's kind of the stuff that's not necessarily directly written, written that I, have, I think you have to work to, to get to. Where's Satan? Where's the devil in all this? Well, one, you know he's off with Judas, right? He's off with Judas. But at the same time, we'll quote another verse here. At the same time, I think Satan is right here in the garden because everything is coming to a head. Everything is culminating right here. And I find it really interesting too. If you look back across the gospels, Satan's will, Satan's desire is that Jesus doesn't go to the cross. I know that seems really weird to us because we're like, Everything surrounding Jesus going to the cross is filled with evil, filled with hypocrisy, and filled with ugliness. So how is, how is it fueled by hatred, ugly, ugliness, and hypocrisy, but Satan against that happening? That's interesting. So where do I get that from? We'll go back to when Jesus was first tempted. He's tempted in the, um, at the beginning of his ministry. He goes into the wilderness. He's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Who shows up? Satan. Satan shows up and he says, hey, aren't you God? Can't you turn to the rocks and turn those into bread and just start eating right now? Why don't you do that? That sounds like a good idea. Why? Why are you going through the pain and suffering? Jesus is like, no. No, he quotes the Old Testament. Satan kind of continues his argument and he says, hey, Jesus, you know what we can do right now? If you bow down to me, I will give you all of the nation's of the earth. You can rule right now without going to the cross, without the suffering, without the prayer in the garden, without being nailed, without dying. I will give it all to you right now. We'll rule and we'll be done with it. Let's do this together. Jesus says, no, no way. Jesus knows that his mission is oriented towards the cross and death. Satan knows the same thing. Satan pops up again later, and he speaks through the words of Peter. Because this is familiar too. We taught on this not too long ago. But um, he, uh, Jesus gets to the point where he's telling his disciples, hey, I'm going to have to die. They're going to kill me. This is how all this is going to end. What does Peter do? No, 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 no. No, Lord. No, 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 no. You've got it all wrong. I've got a better plan. You can't go to the cross. You can't do it. And, and what does he say to Peter? He says, no, get behind me, Satan. Satan shows up and he tempts Jesus through the words of Peter and he's pushing him away from the cross, not toward the cross. Satan doesn't want this because if this happens, Satan loses. This is the final act. Jesus goes through with it, God wins. If Jesus bails, Satan wins. Satan does not want this. Why in the world would Satan put himself into Judas and bring him into being this player in betraying Jesus 
which ultimately leads to the cross. You're like, well, that's a conundrum. How do you explain that one away? Well, keep in mind that before Satan entered into Judas, Judas had already betrayed Jesus. Judas had already gone to the Sanhedrin and, and sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It was already done. And the Sanhedrin had already said, they had already made up their minds earlier in this Passion Week, early in the Passover week, we are gonna kill him. The plan is already moving forward. It's already in motion. Satan enters into Judas because Judas is what's going to accelerate the plan. The religious leaders say, no, there's strategy here. We wait. We wait to get him. We wait to seize him and kill him until after the Passover and the festivals because there's hundreds of thousands of less religious followers in the city and we'll be able to better control the crowds and what happens and we'll be successful if we wait. We don't have a riot. We don't have the Romans coming in and taking the power and the control from us. We control the situation if we wait. But Satan's like, "Uh uh-uh. We're gonna get this done while everybody's here for the festivals. And he enters into Judas and he accelerates the timeline. When I say he accelerates the timeline, keep in mind, this is all under the umbrella of this is God's will. It says back in um, Isaiah that the Lord crushed Jesus, that God crushed Jesus. Jesus. It's his will. That's a hard one for us to wrap our minds around because of how brutal it was. But it's good news and we want that to happen. Because now there's a way for salvation for all of humanity, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. God did this on purpose. It's his timeline. Don't, don't make the mistake of thinking that Satan is in control here and it's Satan's timeline. In Luke, it says something really interesting. In Luke, it says that this is the hour of the power of his darkness. So what does that mean? The hour of the power of his darkness. That means that this is the time for the authority of who? Of Satan. Make no mistake that he is active in what's going on here in the garden and that he is actively working to weigh, to, to weigh in on just, just crushing Jesus and beating him into a pulp. Um, what's the point? point is to understand the weight of what's riding on Jesus' shoulders here in the garden, that he's got this cosmic battle that's weighing down on him, that the heavenly realms are watching this, that Satan is actively involved in this and has been, that, that he's wrestling with his own nature, that he's wrestling with his relationship with the Father, and that he's wrestling with being the atonement, the propitiation that satisfies the wrath of God, and that is heavy. It's crushing it's crushing him. It's the greatest battle that will ever be fought. The greatest battle. If he loses, Satan wins. Heaven is empty. Bible isn't true. Promises of God are lies. There's no salvation. Could God change it? Theoretically, yeah, sure. God can do anything, right? You can't say, oh, God can't do it. But God's already on record in the Old Testament saying that there will be a blood sacrifice for sin. He's already on record with the prophecies that lead up to some guy is going to die on the cross and pay for sin. It's, it's written in the Old Testament. Look at verse 40, 41. Kind of go to the end of this passage. There's a couple things I want to point out. <clears throat> verse 41 is pretty interesting. It says, he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Okay. So with the picture in mind of everything that Jesus is bearing, and that is bearing down on him, to know that he took time to stop praying and to go back a stone's throw away to the guys that he left there and say, hey, are you guys praying? 
Are you guys praying so that you won't fall into temptation? That is comforting to me, to know that the God of the universe in the worst time, in the, in, in the, in the middle of the greatest battle of history, took time out to go check in on his guys. That's the kind of high priest that I want. That's the kind of guy that I want, I want on my side making intercession between me and God. That is magnificent to me. That sets him up as, yes, this is God. Who's gonna do that? Who's gonna go check in on their guys? Not one time, but three times for their welfare, not for his. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pray that you don't run away and fall away. I told you it was gonna happen. Pray that it doesn't happen. Are you prayed up? They didn't. And what happened? They crumbled. They ran. Hang with me in verse 41. What's the second half say? He says, enough of that. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. Look, my betrayer is approaching. This is fantastic too. Jesus, we, we see him just a couple verses earlier. Let's see him say just a couple hours earlier. And he's writhing on the ground. He's crumbled. He's in a heap processing what's going to happen. And he comes out the other end of that. He stands. He's victorious. He's bold. He's confident. He's committed to this mission. There is nothing deterring him now. I prayed. I have my answer. He's saying, guys, get up. We ride. He's got the, the cup in hand that he's going to drink, saying there's nothing stopping me from going. He didn't say, get up, we're going out the back of the garden, as there's more than 500 people coming across. It says there's a Roman cohort. That's usually 600 soldiers, plus all the temple police, plus the Sanhedrin. These guys are coming across with lanterns and torches, clubs and swords, all, all that's in the gospel. They're coming across, Jesus is watching them come across, and he walks, John records him walking right up to them. He doesn't turn around. He says, get up. That's the way we're going. They're coming right at us. And we're going to go. And Jesus initiates the conversation. He's triumphant. He's strong. He's bold. He's ready. Make no mistake about his commitment at this point. I think it's, again, I just think it's fantastic. Um, I want to read, spend just a brief amount of time. Let's, let's read through um, kind of the end of this section through verse 52. It says, right away, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived. With him came a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent by the chief priests and the experts of the law and elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him and lead him away under guard. And when Judas arrived and went up to Jesus, immediately he said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Then they took hold of him and arrested him. One of the bystanders drew his sword and struck the high priest's slave, cutting off his ear. Jesus said to them, have you come with swords and clubs to arrest me like you would an outlaw? Day after day, I was with you, teaching in the temple courts. You did not arrest me? But this happened so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. A young man following him wearing only a linen cloth they tried to arrest him, but he ran off naked, leaving his linen cloth behind. That's a good scene right there, right? Who's the butt-naked guy running away? Um, anyway, I think Jesus is um, magnificent in this scene, and I'm going to kind of summarize and highlight some stuff in this section. Again, keeping in mind, we've got this picture right before of him going through the greatest agony and fighting the greatest battle, okay? Then he goes into this scene where 
They're coming across, they're ready to take him, and he's leading his guys right into the mob, right into the crowd. If you flip over and you look at um, John's account here, what happens in John, John's the one that records Jesus walking up to them and, and speaking with them. So Jesus walks up to him and Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus, the Nazarene. And he says, I am he. And it's interesting to, to look at what the narrative says right after that. John records that this entire mob, this small army, they fall down on the ground. Well, that's interesting, right? I am he, and boom, like what if I said, hey guys, I am he, and I'll use, you know, now you're laying on the ground. Okay, you get back up and it happened again. He says, who are you looking for? So great. Um, what happens when Jesus says, I am he? What he's actually doing is saying, I am, I am. Jesus says, I am. So he's making reference back to the beginning of Exodus. Moses comes on the scene. Uh, Moses says, hey, when I go and I, I tell the people of Israel, this is who sent me, who do I tell them sent me? God says, tell them, I am sent you. And when Jesus says that, that name that evokes divine power, the Jewish people call it the tetragrammaton, this name that they won't say, this name that often when they write it, they substitute it out and write Adonai, Lord, because they don't want to write it, they don't want to say it because of what it brings with it, the weight of that name. Jesus says this and John says, all of them fell down, you know? And then in the storyline, in John's storyline, it's after that that Peter's like, oh, I'll get him, Lord, you know? Like, and he misses, right? I mean, when you go, if you go bring out your sword and you're going to do some damage, like, kill the guy. Peter, like, whacks his ear off. Again, I'm sure John's sitting there being like, hey, Peter, you missed. <laughs> Stick to fishing, you know? The Lord reaches out and goes, puts the guy's ear back on. So, the, uh, his composure in the middle of this crisis, his composure of the middle of this situation, I'm walking right into this mob, okay? I'm addressing Judas, and Matthew records, Judas walks up to him, and he says, Judas, you betray me with a kiss? He confronts and rebukes Judas. He has this way of asking these calm, collected, rational questions to the mob, to the religious leaders, saying, where were you on Monday when I was in the temple? Why didn't you arrest me then? Okay, Tuesday, I was also back in the temple. Where were you then? Oh, you didn't like that I turned your tables over? You know? So he's, he's challenging them and rebuking them. I think what he's doing is he's, he's unmasking their hypocrisy. The fact that they're coming to get him with clubs and swords in the middle of the night to avoid the crowds, they're cowards. They're hiding. They're hypocrites. And he's pulling that, he's, he's masterfully pulling that mask off and saying, look at you. Look what you're doing, Right? At the same time, he turns to Peter, and his words to Peter are instruction and command. Don't do this, Peter. Put your sword away. This is not the time for swords, okay? I knocked him down with two words. He also says, it all, the Bible records, don't you know I could call down 12 legions of angels, the 72,000 angels? He tells Peter, Peter, I could, one word, I could end this right now. Put your sword away, dude. Come on. But he doesn't hassle Peter. He doesn't give him a bad time. He doesn't make him feel like an idiot. He instructs him and redirects him and says, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. You're going to do this. You're going to give them reason to kill you. And that's counterproductive right now. It's not about you. It's about me. They're here for me. His composure, the way that he's collected, 
and is able to strategically, pointedly address different players in this story and the way he does it, this is God. This is God. This is not a man. This is the savior of the world and he's marvelously being displayed in this scene as God. And it, I, I think it's incredible. Like those, so the song we were singing, oh, what a wonderful savior. Oh my gosh. He's standing there bloody and sweaty from what he went through and he's able to just command this situation with authority. Blows me away. Who is this? <laughs> Who is this? Um... Gosh, I think there's some really great lessons. I think there's probably four sermons of content in these passages. We could, do, we could talk about Old Testament prophecy leading up to this point, and it would be fantastic. We could teach just about Judas. That guy's an interesting character, right? Wait, what, what a great honor and privilege for any of us to be able to spend any time with Jesus. Let's go eat breakfast with him. Let's go cook some Fish, let me spend some time with Jesus. What an honor, what a privilege. We've got a guy, a player in the story. He has been with Jesus for three years and he's seen everything. And he turns his back and walks away. Doesn't that baffle you? It baffles me. I think there's a sermon there on Judas. Um, I think we could talk about prayer. There's a really strong message in here about are you prayed up? Prayer is our way of tapping into God's divine grace that he wants to give us. Prayer's our way of keeping ourselves from temptation. And the disciples didn't pray out of sorrow. It's not that they were tired. It says they were sorrowful. They didn't pray. They didn't tap into the divine grace that they needed from the Lord. And what happened? They crumble, they fall away, and they deny Jesus. Jesus prayed. He was God, and he prayed. That's striking, isn't it? He was God and he was praying that, that the Lord would usher him through the temptation. Again, I, I think there's a lot of lessons. I think there's a lot there that I wish we uh, had more time to uncover. At the center of the story, I want to come back to this idea that um, Jesus took on sin and it was unnatural and alien to him. He took it on for our sake. He became something that he wasn't. He wore something that was beyond uncomfortable for him that didn't mesh with him. And he took and he drank the cup of wrath, of the wrath of God at the cross. And he's wrestling with that in the garden. Um, he did that for you. He did that for me. We needed that because the system that God set up in the Old Testament, we were too imperfect to fit into that box. It's not that the system was broken. It's that we were too imperfect to fit it. And, and God needed to do something else here to interject in and, and save us because we weren't going to make it. We weren't going to make it. Jesus is incredible. He's incredible in this story. Um, he, uh, I, I think the message this morning is he's done all the work, right? Look at what he just went through. He did the work. He set the banquet table. He set out the feast. He said, you just come and you sit and eat. I'm inviting you just to be a part of it. See me and believe it. So I think a huge challenge for us, it's not just to see. Look back at Judas again. Judas saw everything. And he stiff-armed God with his hard heart turned around and he walked the other way. He sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the price that you would buy a common slave for. It almost doesn't make sense, does it? 
He saw everything and turned and didn't follow Jesus. I think the message for us is to see and believe. This is the savior of the world. There's no one like this in history. There's no battle that's been fought like this in history. And if you're in the spot where you're stiff-arming God, stop, don't. Put your arm down. Say, okay, Lord, I'm yours. Pray with me. God, thanks for this morning. Thanks for um, the depth of your word, God, to know that it takes some work, I think, to look into the deep things here to see your son's heart probably like we've never seen it on the other pages of scripture, God. There's a lot going on here that I think the Bible indicates that he wrestles with. God, it's like peering into things that I think few people see. Like going into a cave and looking at all sorts of rock formations down there where you're like, no one gets down here and sees these things, they're treasures. Um, there's certainly an element of mystery to it, God. Um, Lord, I don't, I don't know quite what to say in response to something like this other than thank you. And it, it doesn't seem like that does it, does it? It doesn't seem like that cuts it. Thank you. <laughs> God, thank you for your son. Thank you for what he did, what he bore on my behalf and thank you for inviting me to the table and God I pray for the hearts in the audience today that you would I don't know that you would call them and break down the barriers that keep them from saying yeah I see it and I believe it and I want it if you want to pray with someone this morning if you'd like to if you'd like to come up and talk with us, there's going to be some people at the front. I'll be up at the front. I'd be happy to chat with you if you're at that spot where you're like, I'm in. I want that kind of high priest inter- interceding for me before the Lord, and I need that kind of sacrifice to pay for my sins. Thank you, Lord. Amen. You guys have a great week. Looking forward to building up to Easter Resurrection Sunday. We'll see you next week.